Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Bow Hunter Chronicles podcast brought to you by Huntworth. Huntworth, for all types of weather, for all kinds of terrain, for all kinds of budgets, it's clothing that just works. Check them out at huntworthgear.com. It is finally here, November. This is what we train for, guys. This is the best time of year. Um, this podcast, I was actually going to put out next week, uh, but the information, uh, I felt like we're, we're kind of like coming up on it depending on where you're at in the rut. Uh, so I think this information is going to be helpful to some guys. Uh, it's going to open some people's eyes. Some people are going to think maybe uh, maybe it's not for them. Uh, but, uh, talking to Brian Keeft about, uh, scrapes, um, kind of like mock scrapes, kind of how bucks use scrapes, how he hunts scrapes, uh, at different times of the year. Um, and we may be, um, uh, you may be able to use some of these tactics here in the, in the coming, uh, days and weeks, uh, to, to help bring you some success. i uh, got to give a couple of shout outs here to, uh, Jason Nichols. He, uh, put down his first, uh, deer with a bow in a long time and uh pretty excited about that uh 
Nolan Clark, Tim Clark's son, has been grinding this year um, and finally was able to wrap his tag around his uh, first bow kill with the, with the compound. Uh, so congratulations to him. And I was uh, made, uh, made aware that I left out Mike Kelly from New York shooting uh, a really nice buck uh, over there from the ground, uh, shot Indian style, as a matter of fact. So congratulations to all you guys, uh, to Mike, um, uh, also a new Patreon. I think there's just one, uh, my buddy Eric, uh, supporting, uh, supporting the podcast. So, uh, thanks to Eric for, for that. Uh, we just got back from, uh, Indiana and, uh, fun kind of, uh, kind of pregame for, for Kansas was able to kind of get my, some of my gear dialed in, um, get some of my processes, take a look at, uh, some of the things that I need, some things that I don't need, um, going in there. But, um, but anyways, got to give a shout out, you know, Alex chop just killed a great deer. Um, go over to the latitude page. Um, you know, <laughs> Bill Thompson from Spartan Forge killed one of the biggest six or and maybe it had a kicker. So seven points, great looking deer. Go check that out on the, the Spartan Forge or Bill Thompson's page. Uh, just deer are dropping everywhere. This is, like I said, this is what we train for. This is the time of year. Uh, but if you're, you are looking for any, uh, gear, um, you can go to latitude, check out code, uh, BHC to save 15% off. Um, they had some platforms back in stock and, uh, everybody that sees them, everybody that uses them, their vapor lines, um, are are really good really high quality ropes um about about eight millimeter just about like the oplux uh but really great uh definitely check those out uh big shot targets you can use code bcp to save 10 percent there uh, spartan forge you can save 25 percent using code bowhunter and uh you know their prices were going up so uh definitely go over there check that out um save yourself some money uh and then you know, also to our friends, Lucky Buck, we're getting tons and tons of pictures um, up in the UP. And now we're starting to see like that Lucky Buck style rack where, um, you know, if you remember back to that podcast and then talking with Tracy, um, we're getting up there. We don't have really good genetics. There's not a lot of ag and uh, we're getting mass all the way out to the tips of the antlers now. And uh, it's pretty neat after a couple of years uh, seeing that. So you check them out at Lucky Buck. Zinger and Kanadi, those guys. Uh, Steve Terry just put down a, a great book, Buck over there in Wisconsin. So, um, but the Kanadi Arrows and uh, the Zingers flying great. Uh, love those guys over there. So check out those partners. Those are the guys that support us. They give away stuff to the Patreons. We got a Patreon uh, giveaway every quarter. Um, so we're giving away something from all of those companies as well as Huntworth. And I think Huntworth, we're going to give away some of that cold weather gear. I think it's going to be the Holton. Um, some of my favorite stuff, uh, we actually wore it, uh, for the first time, uh, yesterday and the day before in the rain, uh, was just like kind of one of those misting things where, uh, it's got enough DWR coating that's not going to soak through, uh, but definitely insulated enough. Uh, so really really happy with that stuff. So I think we're going to give away a set of that. I got to talk with Nate. Um, but you can, if you want to be a part of that, our, our Marco Polo group is, is flying. Uh, you can check that out at, uh, patreon.com forward slash born chronicles podcast. You just go to our website, uh, click on the, the Patreon link or link in Instagram. Um, it's like 33 cents a day, something like that. 17 cents a day, uh, become part of the community sports show, get a chance to win some great gear, support some great companies. So 
thank you. I know you guys are going to love this podcast. You're going to say, why didn't you give me this information two weeks ago? Um, like I said, I'm actually putting it out early. I just got the information and uh, I thought you guys would like it. So as always, enjoy the episode. All right, everybody, Adam back with another episode of the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast. And uh, we're, we're kind of getting into the meat of it. And while we're, uh, we're sitting here, we're, we're really right there. This is going to come out in a, a week or so. So it might be, Maybe we'll have to change the way that we talk about this a little bit. Uh, but going to be talking with uh, Brian Keeft, uh, BK Outdoors on Instagram, if you've uh, been following along. And uh, you, if you're following along and you've seen his stories, um, he's the guy that I always look to for the scrape information. And as a matter of fact, while we were up at the Patreon hunt, we are sitting there and Matt was uh, asking about uh, the scrapes and how you'd hunt the scrape. And I said, I said, well, there's a scrape guy right there. And, uh, we got to, we got to talking and pulled out the maps and, uh, and yeah. So how are you doing tonight, Brian? Oh, not too bad. How about you, Adam? I'm hanging in there. <laughs> I'm, I'm working like a dog and it's, it's, it's terrible because I feel like, like I said it before, like everybody who has a normal job or whatever, they work every day, they go to work every day. Well, I've just become accustomed to not working every day. And, uh, having to work like all these days in a row, working weekends, especially like during hunting season and knowing like there's these honeydew lists and things that, you know, so I had a day off yesterday and did no hunting. Um, I went to a field trip with my daughter, um, which is fine. And then came home, got the camper buttoned up, you know, all the things that you have to do, um, as a husband and, uh, a member of society, but, uh, but yeah, I would much rather be hunting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, sometimes you can burn yourself out of the uh, hunting too much too, you know, I mean, got to find that balance in life and Hey, sounds to me like you got a pretty good gig though. If you can work that many hours and then go, yeah, I'll work four weeks on and four weeks off and uh, just hunt the rest of the time. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's working out pretty well for me right now. Um, so a little bit into introduction. So what, what is your, uh, hunting history, Brian. So like how, how did you grow up hunting and, and what's, what's your hunting style? So yeah, I grew up, uh, I started hunting at the age of 12. My dad, uh, brought us up, started out hunting state land, uh, you know, pretty much was solely 100% state land for, you know, the first, uh, 10, 15 years, uh, hunting. Then I started getting into, you know, some private pieces here and there, but, um, my hunting style, uh, early on in the early days, um, was really pretty basic at a basic level. You know, my dad, we went out and he focused mainly on, you know, finding fresh sign, um, runways, travel corridors, things of that nature. And, um, it was just basically a real, a real basic endeavor. You know, we'd go up there bow hunting and bow hunting was mainly, um, just kind of like scouting season for my dad. And when I was younger for rifle season, um, my dad was really you know, more so on the, on the rifle side, not so much the bow hunting side. So bow hunting kind of took the back seat, um, to a lot of that. But the way I learned was different than a lot of my peers in that day, because a lot of my peers hunted over bait piles and I was never really introduced to even hunting over bait or anything like that until even like later on in life, um, dabbled a little bit of that, you know, like, uh, 18, 19, 20 years old you know, later on, but I learned just how to read sign 
you know, do it the natural way, you know, travel court, like I said, travel corridors, things of that nature. And that's really where that kind of started. As far as my hunting style today, um, for me, it's really, it, it really is mainly all about scrapes. Um, I deal with scrapes pretty much throughout the entire year, uh, whether I'm setting them up in the spring or whatever, just to get inventory on deer to, to figure out what's going on. But even, even like right now, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm mainly focusing on scrapes, but the only time I don't really focus on scrapes is when I start to get towards the end of, uh, say like rifle season or when you get into December, then I try to focus on those late season food sources, because even though the deer will hit the scrapes, I I've never really been able to get them to be attracted to them like I can during the pre-rut and the rut. So, you know, like it's mainly all the scrapes. Um, I deal with things that I call like, uh, mock bedding areas. I do mock scrapes, hunt natural scrapes. Um, but I also like in the beginning of the year and I, and I put these on my stories too. Like I break my season up into like 15 day blocks. So like October 1st to the 15th, I'm mainly focusing on just a, a standard, you know, bed to food travel situation and I'll hunt, you know, corridors and things like that. This time right now, we're at the 25th of October. I'm in that second block, which is basically the 15th to the 30th. And this is where I really focus in on scents, scrapes, um, you know, dull bedding, that kind of stuff until we get into the rut, which is then what I consider my next phase, which is like, you know, November 1st to the 15th, you know, and then I have the cutoff at, at rifle season. So, you know, other than the scrapes, I would say that I try to be, you know, is what more well rounded, balanced, I guess, you know, I don't try to just fit into one, you know, one group. I'm, I wouldn't call myself like a rut hunter. I wouldn't call myself like a bed hunter, even though I do dabble in that, you know, I mean, I will hunt, you know, say rut funnels or pinch points. And if I do know that there's a, a halfway decent buck in a bedding area, um, that I can try to set up on, uh, you know, I'll do that, you know, I'll try to hunt a bedding or whatever, but you know, I find like with beds, um, in most of the areas that I hunt, the bucks just bounce around, you know, I mean, you can find beds or whatever, but it's been a rare occasion for, um, you know, the areas that I hunt that I'm going to find a buck in a specific bed at every time. I mean, it just seems to me like they just bounce around in a bedding area and I, and you know, they're here, there, everywhere, or they're, or they'll move to another bedding area and you know? also. I've never really found that tactic to really, uh, you know, suit my style, I guess. But so, you know, put in a nutshell, it's, it, it, it really is pretty much all about scrapes for me. So uh, from the scrape perspective and especially looking at scrapes all year round for inventory and all of that, um, what are the things that you look for? I guess, what are the different types of scrapes? Like as far as like where, they are in the woods. So like open timber, edge of bedding, the, you know, the primary scrape that, you know, if we're talking podcast terms, car hood scrape, yeah. you know, um, all of those things. And then I guess go, go through the different types of scrapes and what they mean to you. Yeah. So I, I basically break <clears throat> scrapes down into, you know, like maybe three or four categories, you know, you have like, say field edge scrapes um it, those are kind of the open scrapes those are kind of like boundary things i view them as like a boundary type scrape 
Um, to me, those have absolutely no significance on anything that I want to hunt. Um, then I'll have, you'll have scrape lines, which will pop up, you know, during, during the pre-rut phase that I find in, in that 15 day block that I go from October 15th to the 30th. And I'll hone in on those. If I know that a mature buck is, is making those scrapes, if he's making a scrape line, I'll hone on on those. And those scrape lines are usually a travel route that that buck's taken, you know, whether it's from his bed to a food source and he's trying to intercept does at a food source or whatever, and, and he's working way back. And that's all part of, of what I call like his circuit. And his circuit, will it'll be a circular area, an elliptical area covering his entire home range that he'll run throughout the rut and those scrape lines you can find those and what i try to focus in on i look for key things like i look for the depth of scrape if i can't determine if a mature buck's making that scrape line you know just by reading the sign whether it's from a track or the depth of the scrape i'll put a camera on it um sometimes i'll hunt a scrape on a scrape line and if i if i still can't determine whether or not it's a mature buck if i'm not running cameras a lot of times I'll just pay attention to how other deer react to those scrapes. Because typically if, if it's a really older buck, four and a half or what have you, a lot of times you'll see younger bucks come by those scrapes. And sometimes I've seen it where they'll actually cower down and they won't, they don't want to go near the scrape. It's almost like they're afraid of getting their ass beat by that scrape. So you can kind of determine whether or not a mature buck's making that scrape line just, just from watching other deer, you know, if you want to set up on it from a distance and kind of watch it. Um, and then the other you know, big scrape, which I really try to focus on. And, and these are natural scrapes, you know, we're not talking mocks, but would be your primary scrape. And, uh, you know, primary scrape, I look for just a ton of licking branches. I'm not looking for, you know, just one single licking branch I'm looking for. And even when you say like a car hood scrape, most of the primaries that I find, some of them will have big car hood scrapes, but a lot of times they will be, you know, a couple decent size scrapes with multiple licking branches all over and that's what i'm looking for is i'm looking for i'm looking for just a ton of licking branches hanging down in these areas and a lot of times if you find a primary scrape you'll have satellite scrapes on the outside of the primaries and the satellite scrapes are usually bucks as they're coming around on the downwind side checking that primary scrape they get excited smelling that primary scrape so they'll they'll make scrapes out around the perimeter of that as they're traveling around on the downwind side of them and that's usually how i set up on the scrapes is i'm always set up on what i call the banana which is the scent checking trail arcing out sweeping around a primary scrape that mature bucks like to take because they're not always coming directly into the scrape so that's typically what i focus in on are the primary scrapes you know, if you imagine a Venn diagram where, you know, in the center of the heart of that, you have, you know, primary scrapes are right in the heart, all that activity. It usually encompasses, you know, multiple buck home ranges and they're all checking it. So one of the things when you talk about, so setting up a mock scrape and these primary scrapes, right? Is the mock scrape just for inventory? Or are you setting up as like kill places where you think that there should be a scrape or you want the deer to be at? Yeah. So I run mocks basically from, you know, spring through summer, early summer. And if they take off and if deer take them, then I'll set them up as kill spots. 
But most of the time, going into the the early parts of summer, I try to get them so that they come in on these mocks, basically just for inventory. And a lot of times they don't take off on scrape because their home ranges will start to shift, whether it's based on food or whatever. If they start moving out of the area, a lot of times they won't stick to that. When it comes to when it comes to primaries, you know, I you're almost better off hunting a primary that you find a natural primary because that scrape is there for a reason. That scrape is in most of the time they're in perfect, you know, and, and, you know, I, there's a big, you know, coin term phrase now, like thermal hubs, right? A lot of times they're in those, those bottoms or on those benches that deer can both, you know, they can send them on the way in the evening from the bottom, they can send them. And then when they come in in the morning to go with, to go to bed, they can send them from the top on a ridge or whatever. They're usually always in those areas where the thermals are dropping down in there and they can just, you know, send them every which way and check those out. Trying to find those spots and usually trying to find those spots and set up a scrape. Most of the time, if you find an area like that and there's no scrape there, then yeah, try to put a scrape up in a, in a location like that. But nine times out of 10, you find a spot like that, there's usually a scrape or has been a scrape there at one point. So in that, when you're finding these and just like this podcast, like as we're putting more and more information out there, um, you know, the Spartan forges, all this mapping type stuff where now you can see the topo, you can maybe do a lot more e-scouting, a little bit less boots on the ground and go in and say, and, and everybody who's hunted seriously for the last four or five years who's using these has had this happen where you look at the map, you go in and you're like, that's exactly where I thought it would be. Um, how are you dealing with pressure or, you know, that's the one thing when you come upon these big scrapes, it's like anybody and everybody who comes across that is going to look at that and say, well, I got to hunt this or, or whatever. So, So this may, you know, this may seem kind of gimmicky, but that's why, that's why I started doing what I call mock bedding areas. So when you're dealing, when you're dealing with public land, if you go out to public land, what attracts hunters? Scrapes. Most scrapes that you come across, and and my wife and I were just scouting a piece of public not too long ago, and come across a cell cam on a scrape. Your typical thing that you see nowadays when you go when you're scouting public land right point right at the scrape it's one of those things it's like scrapes attract not only predators but they attract hunters so a life that has the stories to back it a life to be proud of it's a winchester life yeah baby six eight western oh, i'll be over there baby right there tune in every tuesday at 7 p.m eastern on waypoint tv Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. When I, when I mock some areas on public land, I focus on what I call mock bedding areas. And what I'll do is I'll send up a thicket, and I won't put any scrapes in there. I send it up as if it's a doe bedding area. And then I set up and hunt in that and the downwind side of that. And I let bucks hit those scrapes and, and make their own scrapes around the perimeter of that. Because I've had it where if, if I set up a scrape 
it attracts other hunters. And before you know it, it gets blown out because then they're in there dicking around, walking around, hitting it all up. So when it comes to, to the public areas, I really try to hide where those scrapes are in certain thick areas. But if you, you know, if you're trying to make a mock for a primary, you know, most of them are in like little clearings that have good perimeter cover. Sometimes you can't get away from it. You're going to have people walking through there, walking by them. It's just the gamble you take, you know, so you try to conceal that stuff as much as possible. But yeah, you're right. I mean, in today's age, I mean, I, you know, everybody's looking for that kind of stuff. So, but you know, when it, when it comes to time for season, when you, you know, you set up for like a kill time, that's one of the reasons why when I do make mocks for like when it's a kill period is I set myself up for about a two to three week, three day window. When I send an area up, I'm expecting basically to hunt that spot for two to three days, morning, evening, as much as I can in that time frame before a buck figures out what I'm doing to give me an opportunity and for before other hunters can even come in and, and figure out what you're doing. So, And when you say send it up, are you saying when you go in there and you put your scent in there or are you using like attractants or like that sort of thing? Yeah, attractants. Okay. Yep. So what is your process for doing that then? If you're going to like so, set up an area. So, okay. So what I do is I do totally different than probably what 90% of people do when you come across scent. So I used to do just like everybody else. I started, when I first started hunting scrapes, setting up scrapes, I would go and buy scent drippers, right? Everybody buy a scent dripper. You hang a scent dripper and you have one scent. Um, you know, over the years through trying different things and different scent running, even drag lines from scrapes to other locations, trying to pull deer off of scrapes to where I was, where I was hunting. I started, I started incorporating other scents to where I wouldn't use just one deer scent. And I started to realize that I was having more success using multiple types, multiple brands of deer scent. And when I, when I say that I'm talking you know, whether it's, you know, golden estrus or tinks or, or whatever you go to the store. And what I would do is I just start buying just about everything that I could. And what I found, and it, it's kind of funny and here again, it's going to kind of sound gimmicky, but my, my philosophy and my theory on that is I, is it's a confusion thing with, with bucks. If you go in and you use one cent and you have to remember like, you know, I see a lot of guys, you know, you try to be as scent free as possible when they're making these mocks, you know, some guys are wearing rubber gloves, you know, trying to be as scent free as possible. You can't, you can't ever eliminate your scent a hundred percent in those areas when you're doing that. So when a buck comes in and you're using one scent, let's say you're using tank 69 and it's you, it doesn't take long for a deer to figure out, okay, I just marked this, this is a guy, they're going to mark you there. They're going to know exactly. They're going to, they're going to know your scent. They're going to know your, your scent marker. They're going to know that, Hey, that's Adam Miller coming in here and he's putting down tink 69 and then they're going to smell you down the line or whatever. You come back in the next day. It's Adam Miller putting down tink 69. What I do is I go down and I go in and it's Brian Keefe putting down tink 69 power scrape, golden esters, hot scrape. I'm putting down all kinds of stuff. I want that thing to smell like a French whorehouse. And excuse my, you know, my French on that, but I want it. 
I want it to be so centered up that it, it almost confuses the deer and they don't know what the hell's going on in there. And they get to a point where, you know, nobody likes to not be invited to the party, right? So when that buck comes in there and he smells that, or he gets a whiff of it from a mile away, and he comes in and he tries to determine what's going on in there. He can't, he can't differentiate Brian Keith with Tink 69 anymore. He's got all these other deer scents that he's trying to figure out what the hell's going on. And a lot of times he can't, he can't figure it out. And that gives me just enough time window within a two to three day period to attract as many bucks as I can into that spot, and hopefully kill one. And is that your strategy? Like, 99% of the time it works 100% of the time. Yep. Like that's what you do every time. <laughs> <laughs> well, it doesn't work every time, but it worked on the buck that I just killed a week ago. So, and, and, you know, just for an example, like the buck that I killed a week ago, um, I was after a target buck. Okay. And I had pictures of this deer going up to October 2nd. I knew where this deer was bedding. I put a setup. It, this wasn't a mock, but I, I, I tried to hunt his bedding area and I, the wind shifted on me that night. And I'm pretty sure I blew out the bedding area because he never showed, he never came out and I lost him on camera for about two weeks. Um, a buddy of mine who hunts about a mile and a half away, sends me a picture of a new buck that he, he had come up and it happened to be that, that deer on my hit list. This was three days before the cold front came out. So I went out. And I did my setup that next night that buck was on, on my place. So within, and that deer was a mile and a half away, he came in and for the next five, no, four nights, he was in and out of that area, scent checking that whole spot. Saturday night, he daylighted at 640. I wasn't in my stand because I planned on hunting at Sunday because I, you know, before we get too far into it, because I try to time these, I try to time these setups too for when the cold fronts come in and we'll get into that. But he was there that Saturday. I missed out on the opportunity for him. So I hunted it Sunday. And then that's when that random buck showed up that I posted on, you know, the, the one that I shot last week, he ended up showing up that afternoon and I ended up shooting him. So, and like I said, it usually gives you in the, reason I say a two to three day window, if you, if you ever looked at some of my other stories where I talk about reverse camology, where I set up trail cameras on my access to certain stands, I've come to determine that basically you have a two to th two to three day window before a deer will actually figure out that they're being hunted by you. And so, you know, you can hunt a spot, you know, a lot of guys, when they're being mobile, they'll go in and they'll hunt a spot and then leave me. I like to hunt a spot and I'll hunt it morning, afternoon, you know, the next day, morning, afternoon, I'll, I'll just burn it up. I'll hunt it for two to three days straight. Because a lot of times if you're hunting a spot, you might not have a deer come through, right? So you miss out on that opportunity, but then you hunt it the next day. He might come through, but he still might not hit your scent. But that night he's going to come through or whatever, and he's going to pick up on your trail and then he's going to backtrack you. And then he's going to figure out that he's being hunted. At that point, that spot's burned out and then you got to move on. But you, I look at it as you always have a two to three day window to go in and kill that deer, not just a one day window, like a lot of mobile guys, you know, try to do so. And that's why I say, you know, I, when I set these things up, I'm looking for that. I'm looking for that cold front to come in 
So you have that high pressure coming in with cold temps coming. So you got about a three-day window right there. So I time it with that cold front because that's when those deer are going to be moving. If you can set it up, if you can give them a destination to go to that they can pick up on that scent and go, man, you know, we're they're getting up in daylight. They want to, you know, do some traveling. They catch all this scent coming from a from an area, from a zone. They head up there and you just try to time it, you know, as perfect as you can. So you know, it's interesting that you say that with the the multiple scents, and I would say like I've I've never thought of it like that. But when I killed, uh, and we were just talking about this, the one time that uh, I tagged out here in Michigan, but I killed that that ten point out at, at the, on the property uh, adjacent to where I'm hunting now. Uh, I had some samples. I'd done a podcast with. Uh, Josh Smith from Wild Carrot Sense, and he sent me a whole bunch of stuff. And I had the doe and estrus, and then there was like a like mature buck, like a rutting buck scent. And so mm-hmm. it was like I'd seen these deer on their feet, like I knew like that deer were out searching, chasing, doing all that stuff. So I put both of those out on the trees out in front of me, and kind of like what you'd said about that, the young bucks coming into that scrape. And, you know, not really wanted anything to do with it. Like I, the first deer that came by, I had a, a spike probably 80 yards away sloshing around and he was like walking back and forth, but he didn't want anything to do with coming over by me. You know, I was grunting, I was doing all sorts of stuff. And then all of a sudden I heard a s- second set of, you know, footprints sloshing in there. And then that's when that 10 point came right over, right on a string, right, right to where I had that sent out. And I guess I didn't really ever think about it as like, oh, he wanted to, he was curious or, or whatever. He was like, why, what's going on over there? I just thought, you know, you think, oh, well, if he's the dominant buck and there's other dominant bucks in or whatever. Um, but I guess that makes, makes a lot of sense. And it, you're right. I mean, and don't, I think, I think you've already said this, but it just seems kind of hokey, like very much like the Elmer Fudd guy who's like, I'm going to buy every single gimmick to try to get the acorn cruncher and all the things. Right. And, and that's, and that's what it is, you know, and I, and I do realize that because, you know, in today's age, you know, especially with the podcast and everything, every it's glamorous, right? It's glamorous to go, man, I got this buck pinned in this bed and I'm gonna, I'm gonna hunt his exit trail. I'm gonna, you know, I, I'm playing the thermals. I'm doing all this stuff. It, it's, it's glamorous to hunt that way, right? You know, in, in today's world, it's, you know, uh, you're doing everything right. You got this deer figured out. But, you know, there is, there is another way. And scents are another way. But, you know, using them, like I said, there's, I found that, that for me, there's a right way and there's a wrong way to do it. And when you're only using one, you know, and I'm going to, I'm going to kind of take a step back because, you know, I'm kind of old school in the fact that, you know, even every deer that I shoot, I still cut the tarsals off and I still use them in some retrospect. And if you've ever used a deer tarsal from a deer that you, so if you use a deer tarsal in an area where that deer was shot, and I've had this multiple times, I've hung the tarsal up and I've had deer come in that I knew ran with that buck. And it's, it's really crazy. You'll watch these deer come in and they, it's like, it's like, where are you at? It's like they're long, you know, they're long lost friend. They know the smell of that tarsal. They know that it's that, that buck. 
And I'm 100% convinced that those bucks, especially when they get to that three and a half, four and a half years old, if you're hunting them in an area, they know what Adam Miller smells like. They know what Brian Keefe smells like. They're, they, you know, the whatever boots, if you're wearing the same boots, you're wearing the same hunting clothes, they know what that smell is. They know who you are. And if you're a guy that goes out and like I said, you go and buy, you know, like I said, golden estrus, and that's your favorite brand of scent and you go out and you're putting it out, those deer will begin to mark that scent with you. So everywhere you go, and this is why I think it doesn't work for a lot of guys and they put, you know, they don't put faith into it. You know, they, oh, it's just a gimmick. It's just a joke. They'll go out and they put that scent out and you know, they're constantly doing it. And then those deer, they put that marker on you and they know that that's associated with that. But then here I come and I, like I said, I don't make one scrape. I'll make three scrapes and I'm hanging licking branches all over the place. <laughs> and I'm, I'm hitting all those scrapes with different scents. I'm taking dope and I'm putting it out. See, you know, I hunting scrapes for so long. I've never physically watched a doe ever urinate and scrape. So when I take dope, I don't put it right in the scrape. I put it on, you know, spots around the scrape in the area, like a doe had urinated over here in the corner or whatever. And that's how I'm setting these, these areas up. And yeah, it does sound kind of hokey, but if you've ever found really fresh feed sign, like if you go into the timber and you find a, a single oak tree dropping in the woods, those areas are tore up. There's scrapes everywhere. There's, there's, there's rubs everywhere. There's, you know, there's piss and shit everywhere. You don't smell it because you're not a deer. You don't have the sense that they do. But when they come into those areas, I mean, it, it's like, okay, there's, there's some stuff going on in here. And that's what I try to replicate when I'm doing scrapes or if I'm doing like mock, you know, doe bedding, I, I, I just go all out. I go all out and I do so much of it that it almost mitigates my profile with any other scent in there. And those deer come in, they try to figure out who, who the hell are all these deer coming around in here? And it, it does, it kind of sends them into a frenzy. You know, most of the time, if I know, you know, that there's a shooter buck somewhere in the area, most of the time I can draw them in. And like I said, I got two to three days to do it. After that, if I'm in there too much, then I put too much of my scent in there and then, it, then I end up blowing it out. So in that two to three day window, when you go in there to this area, are you sending it up every single time? So you've got your three, four bottles or whatever, and you're putting the scent out at each sit morning and night, or how, how are you doing that? Nope. Not, not every time, but what I do when I first set them up, I don't put any dough and heat out. I, so when I killed that buck last week, I, I set all those, I set that entire area up used all kinds of different scent. And then I let it sit for about two, three days. That buck was in there. Maybe it was, four, no, it was three days. He came in Saturday night. He was there. And then, like I said, when I went to go after him Sunday, after I got done hunting Sunday, then I had some doe and heat and I put the doe and heat out usually the second day that I hunt. So I do freshen up the area, but I don't freshen up like what you might think, like when I set it up, I'm going balls to the wall and they're setting it all up. I go in there, hunt it the first day. When I come back in the afternoon, when I'm done, sometimes I'll send it that night so that the deer will find it that night. Or 
the next day on the second day, after I get done hunting in the morning, I'll send it and then I'll come back and hunt it again in the afternoon. Um, that's how I killed that buck on Sunday. I used doe and heat. I hunted it Sunday morning. Didn't see, well, I had some deer come through. I had a doe actually kind of skirting around the side. When I got done, I got down, I put that doe in heat and a, and a regular doe urine out in a couple spots. Then Sunday night, that buck came in with two other bucks, a three and a spike. And then there was a couple yearling does that were getting chased and they were running around and, and came in. So, yeah, it's not, it's not as, um, uh, exaggerated is when I set it up, when I hit them again. And the other thing too, is when you think about sense, my philosophy is more and less. So when I set them up, I want to use as many different brands or as many different types of deer scent that I can, which like I said, to me simulates, it would be multiple different deer that, that they have a hard time figuring out, but I don't put a lot down. You know, I think that's another thing that I need to kind of you know, point out there too, is that, you know, a lot of people, some guys will take and they'll put the whole bottle, you know, dump the whole bottle out into a scrape or whatever. I mean, I'm talking just minimal amounts. Um, you know, like if you, you know, you can smell deer, you know, like a rutting buck, you know, you can smell them if you're downwind them or whatever, but you know, you open up a bottle of deer piss and it's, it's really strong. So what I do is if I buy, you know, like just a small, you know, a little bottle of dough and heat or whatever. I, I buy like little atomizer tops if they don't have the little spritz top on them, you know? And so like when I do put that dough and heat out, I'm just doing like one spritz, you know, I'm not, I'm not dumping any out. I'm not doing a bunch. Um, so it's kind of a more or less philosophy, you know, you don't need a, a, a ton of it at the time, but you want a ton of different, um, you know, markers or, or different deer in there to, to simulate, like there's a lot of stuff going on that that buck doesn't know about. And he's trying to figure out what the hell's going on in there. So I had mentioned earlier when I, I pointed Matt in your direction uh, about the scrapes in one of the things that you brought up first in that conversation, but we haven't talked about here at all is the amount of cover around these scrape areas, whatever. And, you know, I've, I've heard it said a bunch of times that, you know, mature bucks, in particular, always want to have such something touching them. Like they want to be in something where they feel like they're safe and they're, they're in cover. So uh, how are you setting up, you know, cause I watched some videos of, of some guys who, you know, you're watching guys shoot in field edges and stuff like that. And then other guys, it's like stuff you can't even walk through. And it's like, you've got one window where the deer can step out here and it's open. Otherwise it's, you know, briar or whatever chest high on the deer um what has your experience been on like the areas where these deer um are in areas where these deer want to be so i i try to replicate the areas on a lot of the primary natural primary scrapes that i find and most of the natural primary scrapes that i find most of them are are in a clearing and I'm talking, you know, the clearing is maybe a 10 yard diameter circle, 10 to 15 yard diameter circle clearing where these scrapes are located with really good perimeter cover. Um, most of the time, 
I, you know, actually all the time, I'm always set up in the cover because those bucks, they like to come in and they stick to that thick edge, but they like to see down in that and see the scrape before they enter most of the time. You know, we don't, we don't give mature bucks enough credit for just how much they key in on other deer. You know, they like to come in and they'll hang right in that thick stuff and watch that scrape. And they try to key in to see if there's other deer there a lot of times, because what those other deer are going to tell them that, Hey, this area is safe. You know, it's okay for you to approach kind of thing. So I, I think they like to set them up in those spots so they can, so they can visually see it without exposing themselves before they come down into them a lot of times. So if I'm, if I find an area that's kind of got an open clearing, I'm always looking for that thick cover on the outer perimeter. If I'm going to set up a spot like that. And then I always hunt on the downwind side. You know, this is another thing that I do differently than what a lot of guys do when they hunt scrapes is I don't hunt directly over the scrapes. Most of the, most of the times when I set up, even when I hunt natural scrapes, I'm not shooting the scrape. And I know that it sounds like really counterproductive because, you know, a lot of people talk about, you know, you got to shoot the scrape. You got to shoot the scrape. I, I don't want to shoot the scrape because I've had too many instances where I've been busted when I'm right over top of a scrape because these bucks are coming in on the downwind side, working on the outskirts, scent checking that scrape before they come in and enter it. I don't think, you know, even when you run cameras on scrapes, a lot of times you know, I've run cameras on scrapes for so long that most of the time when these mature bucks are checking the scrapes, it's when the wind speed is extremely minimal. And I'm talking like, you know, zero, you know, nothing, you know, absolutely those, those pin drop, super calm mornings that they physically have to come to that scrape and get their nose in there to get any kind of scent on it. You know, they can't, they can't work that edge and they can't drift it. So I'm always hunting in that thick edge on the downwind side to where I feel they're going to be working that scrape without ever coming in. And in fact, the, the buck that I shot this past week, I shot him. So from the, where the main scrape was, and I had a second scrape just off the side of that was literally about 50 yards from where that scrape was. And that's how I set all my stuff up. So I view the scrape as like a, as like a target center of the target. And then from there, I work my way out. And a lot of times, it, and, and this isn't for mock scrapes. So like when I talk about like the two to three day, I'm going to call it like the two to three day assault type mock kill spots that I set up are different. I hunt those different than a natural primary. The natural primaries, I try to start our, as far as I can on the outskirts and kind of and work my way in. So they're kind of like observation sits right on the outside in that thick cover but i want to be able to see the scrape from where i'm at so most of the times i'm set up about 75 yards away from that primary scrape not going into it not walking around it not sending it not putting a camera up like i'll run cameras on scrapes but i run cameras on scrapes in during during the years that i'm not planning on hunting them because i want to monitor them and get data for the next year that i'm going to hunt them and that's natural scrapes that's not the mocks that I'm, that I'm talking about, but so I'm always 75, hundred yards out watching that scrape and, and trying to intercept those deers are coming in downwind before they enter in, into the scrape. And that's pretty much how I hunt all of them. 
And so one thing you were alluding to when we uh, said we wanted to talk about on here a little bit was like weather. So your Instagram the other day said something about like when the temperatures and the pressures meet, like that's when you want to be planning to be in the woods. And so I don't understand like, and it's kind of like never really diving into it or understanding like what all of that means with the, with the pressure and the moon and all that stuff. And there's people who really nerd out on that and they're like, okay, well, when the moon is in retrograde and the pressures within these two millimeters of mercury, then you got to be out there. If the sun is underneath, like (laughs) at that point, it's like, I have, uh, I have a daughter, I have a job, I got to work. You know, so <laughs> yeah, like if I can hunt, like I can hunt, like these are better days. Um, so how do you view like weather patterns and pressure and all of that? So I'm basically looking for those cold fronts coming in. Um, there's a lot of resources. I've, I've heard a lot of guys, you know, talk about that. Um, you know, I think you can look up, uh, you know, like Mark Drury, he's a big on that. Um, some other guys too, you can probably look up on YouTube, but what I look for is I'm basically looking for a climbing pressure and then the temperatures dropping at the same time. So if you look at that on a graph and so imagine you have a temperature graph on top and then you have a, a barometer graph on the bottom. So when the pressure is rising, that graph is moving up and it's peaking up. But on that graph above it, the temperature, when the temperature starts to dip and you go, say, from 50 degrees down to 30 degrees, your temperatures start to, start to peak down. So you have, you have that point where the pressure is coming up to a point and then your temperatures are coming down to a point. And it's kinda, it creates kind of like an hourglass when you're looking at the two graphs. Those are like the prime times. So, you have, so that, what that indicates is you're, you have a front coming through. So you may be in low pressure right now and you have a high pressure front coming down, pushing that low pressure out. And usually when you have low pressure, your winds are usually from like the Southwest, South, Southwest. And as that cold front comes through, they'll start to shift. And then you start getting your winds coming from the West. And then eventually they turn into Northwest, North, Northwest. And that's when you know you're in that high pressure. And then you'll get, you know, like you hear that term, like a bluebird day or whatever, you know. So then as that front pushes through then you have you know that bluebird day everything calms down it's cold it's crisp it's clear in the morning you know there's no wind hardly but it's still kind of coming out of the north northwest a bit that's what i'm looking for so like when i set up i try to time and it really goes into even even more strategy than that but you know i'll I'll bring up a scenario on you know things that i've done in the past but so I'm looking for that, for that front. I'm looking for that peak. And the resource that I posted on my Instagram is an app that I use. It's called FlowX. Um, I'm not sure if FlowX is on iPhone. It's on Android. Uh, I looked it up for a guy um, a while back. He was asking him. I don't remember who he was, but we looked it up. And I don't think it was for iPhone, but it is for Android. If you get on Weather Underground on your computer... Weather Underground, when you look at the forecast, will have a chart similar to that. And I'm pretty sure they actually position the temperature and the barometer. I think they're in line with what I'm talking about. FlowX, you can take all kinds of different charts. You can take wind speed. You can take 
uh, barometric pressure, you can take temperature, and you can move those graphs wherever you want. So you can position them however you, you know you want. So um, that's the app that I use. But um, you know, getting back to when that front and how I time, like when I'm when I'm setting up those kill spots, is I watch for when that's coming in. So I'll set up if I know a front's coming in. So we'll take, for example, this past weekend, that front was coming in. I, I believe it was Friday up into Saturday and tapering back off Sunday. I'll set those kill spots up anywhere from three, two to three days before that front. So that it can be scented and have that all ready to go so that when those winds start to shift and start pulling down, if you set those areas up right, and if you know that you have a, a mature buck or a shooter buck that you want to hopefully draw in, if you set those areas up northerly of where, say, a bedding area is, if you have, if you know this deer's bedding down in this spot and you set that kill spot up in the north, you can set that up. You know, you're not creating a bunch of noise that's going to transfer down into that bedding area or what have you. And then as those winds start to shift from west to northwest, it's going to start to blow all that scent right down into that zone that you want to start pulling all those deer up from. And they're going to start coming up, you know, nose to wind, heading up into that area. And eventually what they'll do is they'll hit that spot and then they'll set up camp around there. Because if you've ever... You know, that's another thing why I don't really hunt bedding areas because bucks will shift their, their home ranges, you know, following those does around. They'll start changing and setting up, you know, different bedding zones or whatever to keep on and monitor does before, as they go into heat. So when you start getting into this pre-rut stage, like we're in now rut, you'll start getting those bucks start moving and they'll set up camp around there for, you know, the next day or two until they can figure out what the hell's going on in that, in that kill spot. So I try to time them for that. When that pulls and shoots all that wind down, hopefully trying to draw deer up into that kill zone. And then because it's a perfect storm, because that front is already going to, it's going to force deer to move because of the high pressure and the cold temps. It's going to get deer on their feet. So you want to take advantage of that. So knowing that they're going to be up on their feet, you want that, that kill zone to push all that scent down into where they're at so that they move right up onto you. And uh, hopefully you get an opportunity at them. So that's that's kind of how I time the pressure and the temperatures and all that stuff um, around that. So, so I'm gonna pose this kind of like I I when I talked to Jacob Sklenner, right? It, it seems like this is very much a system and like very calculated. Like if I do these, it's like a formula. If I do these seven steps, then I'm going to kill a deer. Right. And so for you, like a, what would you say? And, and not necessarily on the, the kill, um, but the, but the success rate and seeing the deer that you want to see, um, translating that into like success. So a successful sit would be having it set up. Maybe it's not the deer you want to kill or, or whatever, uh, but pulling deer in, and then two, like what would be like a complete failure and how many times like, do you have to fail in a row to be like, okay, I need to switch something up. Uh, 
you mean if you were if you were just trying this tactic for the first time? Yeah, I mean, I'm uh, so I'm always looking at this from like the listener's perspective, and and yeah. as you know from the the Patreon hunt, there's a lot of guys that are that are learning, that are trying to f- figure this stuff out, and that are you know you know going to try to implement you know whatever they can to, mm-hmm. to up their odds of success. And this seems like a very um, like a methodical, like be well thought out and see like uh, doable. Right. So yeah. you don't have to it's, go in one step every, you know, 15 minutes to and find a deer that's bedded and all this stuff. Like you can right. kind of like bring in the deer to you. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So for one, you know, there's probably a few things that we probably didn't go over when it comes to that. So, you know, I'm, I'm big on setting up. So I always try to give the deer the wind. I'm a, my, my big philosophy is, and I wouldn't say it's a philosophy because right, I know that there's other guys that, that feel the same way. It, most of the bucks, you know, from trail cam data, from just years of watching deer, they, they always travel with a wind advantage, whether it's wind to nose, or I always see them traveling tailwind. And I'm always set up so that the wind is always blowing parallel to where I want those deer to, to come from. So when I set these spots up and I go back to that wind scenario, right? So when those winds start to shift from the Northwest, I want that bedding area down in the Southeast basically. Right. So that Northwest winds coming down that bedding area, wherever I feel like those deer may be, are going to be in that spot. Cause I'm going to pull them from there because when they have the wind of their nose, they're going to be more apt to show themselves during daylight in that spot. Because if a deer has the wind in their nose and they can send an area before they come in there, they feel 100% comfortable coming in. That's why you'll see deer, you know, one night you might not have them come in because they didn't have wind in their nose from their bedding area. So they wait till dark to come in there until they get a full wind advantage. So I always set it up. So when I come into those spots, so if you're setting these, these spots up, you have to kind of be thinking about, okay, how am I going to access, right? So access is number one key to these areas. So if you take, you find a spot and an opening, you have good perimeter cover. You want to set up, you know, off wind of that, you know, and I say downwind, it's also more, it's more mainly off wind more so than downwind. You know, I don't hunt with the wind directly in my face, but I'm downwind off wind of that. So your access is going to be perpendicular to that spot. So I'm going to come in, the wind's going to be blowing from Northwest down to Southeast into that, you know, spot where you want to pull deer. But your access is going to be coming in basically from a southwest line coming in perpendicular to your spot so that you have off wind. You're 50 yards, 75 yards away from there. So your wind is going to be paralleling or or coming kind of cut off wind, right? So you got to kind of be thinking about that too when you set these in. So taking all that into consideration, you set those up, you know, you leave, your access is good. You want to be able to get in and out of there clean. Um. You set that up. I think the first time you do it and you, 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 you take that approach, I think if you see deer, you set this up two days and two days, you go hunt it, set a camera up, whatever. You should be getting pictures of deer coming in there 
checking that out. And the first time that you sit in there, I would consider the very first time that you go in, you should see a buck. I mean, I would consider that a successful first time set for, for your listeners or anybody, you know, attempting to try that. It could be any buck, um, a spike, a three point, whatever, because you have to remember too, like any deer that you draw in there, if they're attracted to them, and I don't care if they're yearlings, does or whatever, they're going to actually start leaving their own scent. So now you just threw in, you know, more markers into that whole area that is going to, you know, potentially drag another deer in there. And if you hunt it for the next three days, I think, you know, success rate, you know, if you're, like I said, if you, if you see deer that first day, I would, I would consider that a hundred percent success. And then for yourself, so this did not come, uh, overnight. Right. And so I feel like. It took years. Uh, yeah. I feel like for a lot of us, like it takes, you know, there has to be that like marker of success. Right. So what now do you expect to see deer every single time? And are you, and I guess like a caveat to that is one thing that you mentioned in there, like in the, in the explanation that I don't think was covered as much is so now with the advent of like cell cameras and everything like that, Let's say that that last um, last weekend when you killed that buck, right? If you had gone set that up, like, did you have a cell cam over there? And then, if you would have not had deer in there in the days leading up to it, would it have changed your mind? So yes, I did have a cell cam in there. Um, if well, do you mean would it change my mind on the tactic, or would it change my mind on whether you would go in there and hunt? Oh yeah. Yeah. So I was looking for a specific buck when he showed up and he started coming in there, then yeah, I'm not so sure I would have went in there. I probably would have just kind of kept letting it linger until either he came in or I would have went and did another spot. Um, I knew that he was coming in there, but I missed my window opportunity because I didn't hunt Saturday night and he had daylighted coming through there. Um, but like I said, when I hunted the next day, I, I was a hundred percent happy with the random. And that's, you know, that's the thing that, you know, you're going to run into. And of course, you know, being from Michigan, I'm an opportunist. I'm not going to, I'm not going to let 110 inch deer walk because, well, you know, I mean, you just, you don't get that many opportunities here and, you know, three and a half year old deer in our area, you know, you hunt the same area, you know, I mean, it's, you just, you know, you got to take them when you can. You know, I mean, you, you don't get that many opportunities. So if he's going to come by, um, I checked him out. I was actually, you know, pretty shocked. I'm like, okay, well, you know, it, it's going to be you then today. Cause, you know, <laughs> so, um, but yeah, if I, if I wouldn't have had pictures of that deer, um, I probably wouldn't have went in there because I never even got pictures. Like I said, that the buck that I did shoot, he wasn't there two days previous when that other one, uh, was coming through. So. Okay. And so as we're, um, kind of wrapping this up, one of the things that I wanted to touch on that we didn't, um, you know, cause we, we, I guess we kind of got wrapped up into this. Does your strategy change? Like, do, are you doing this exact same thing all the way right up until gun season or does it change with that rut period that, uh, you know, that's 
third 15 day window when you're November 1st to the 15th. Yeah. So, so that strategy does, does change. Um, so when we get into the, the November 1st to the 15th, typically what I'm doing is I'm setting up on, on the outside of dough bedding and I'm getting really close to the thick stuff because, you know, in most of the areas that I, you can usually see uh, just even from cameras and that, that a lot of the areas that I hunt, I'll always have a doe that goes into heat somewhere around the 30th, whether it's the 28th, um, somewhere in there, it always seems like there's a doe that goes into heat right around that time period. So when it hits the first, a lot of times those, those does start to kind of ramp up and they're starting to go into heat during that time. So you're getting a lot of those bucks pushing them in and they're still hitting scrapes, but they're not, you know, they're not in that, that I got to find that first hot doe, you know, I mean, they, they start getting those does and they start pushing them in there. And so I start setting up on, on the outside of doe bedding. And that's when I'll start to look for, you know, if I can find a natural scrape, I'll set up on those, or I try to get right in doe bedding, try to beat them, you know, back in there in the morning. Um, so that's kind of how my strategy changes into that, that other 15 day window. Yeah. Doing, doing the mock scrapes and hunting the primaries, that's from the 15th to the 30th. In my opinion, that's, you know, if you, when you, your best times to kill a mature buck is when they're, you know, they first want to find that hot doe. And I, and I feel like that's why that, you know, that scent strategy is so important because it's like, you know, they're looking for a hot doe. And, you know, here they, they get this in, you know, big whiff in their face of all this deer activity going on in the spot that they have no clue what the hell was even going on in there. And they have to go there and investigate because they're all looking for the same thing at that time. 15th to the 30th, it, you know, that's the strategy for that. So today it's the 25th. We got another cold front coming up this weekend, actually, you know, coming into Friday. So there again, you know, it's, it's Wednesday. So tomorrow i'm gonna head out um you know start looking for another spot and like i said when you you can hunt that same spot that you set up before but then the effectiveness kind of wears off because then you know they start to kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together i think you know then it's like okay well i didn't find you know kind of seemed like mary jane was here but i can't find mary jane you know and i can't you know what i mean so they're, they're trying to look for all these deer and they can't figure out what the heck it is so then your window of opportunity closes after that three days. Um, you're better off going to a whole different area and just repeating the process, doing it over. That's awesome. I think that's going to help a lot of guys probably next year or uh, <laughs> a lot of guys that, uh, you know, where their rut is kind of a little bit differently timed than uh, here in Michigan. Uh, but like I say, so are you, cause you said you, you focus mainly on scrapes year round. So, are you looking for like scrapes or buck activity on the downwind side of these doe bedding, or are you just setting up on perpendicular trails, just getting the the cruising bucks uh, from the first to the fifth? Oh, no, yeah, I'm I'm looking for scrapes on the outside of that too. Yeah, you know because I <clears throat> if I can't see that's the thing like with the mocks, I would much rather prefer to actually hunt a natural scrape than do the mock. Because the, doing the mocking and the kill spots, you know, it, it takes a lot more work. You know, you have to go out there. You have to set these areas up, things like that. You have to put the scent out. Whereas, 
you know, you go in, you find a natural scrape on the outside of dough bedding set up on it. You know, r- literally all you got to do is just bring your, your gear, bring your saddle, your platform, your stand set up on that. And, uh, you know, hunting a natural scrape, in my opinion, if, if it's hot, you know, is just as effective as doing, you know, any of the mocking things. So yeah, that, that November 1st to the 15th, I'm looking for that, you know, that buck activity, that cruising activity on the downwind side of those. Cause it seems like that's where they really shift their focus. Cause they start to, they move in closer to those areas and, uh, you know, that's where they're honing in on. And, you know, at that time it's, and, and, you know, it's so frantic at that time that, you know, they can differentiate between, you know, the, the bottle piss that you're putting out there and an actual real dough and heat, you know, they're going to go after her and they're going to, you know, track them down. So I don't, I don't usually mess with the sense in that during that time period, just focus on, on the natural. Okay. Okay. So it, it turns out that Brian also makes some hunting products, uh, here and there. And, uh, I don't, do you make anything for scent? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, I'm not trying to sell any scent. Nope. Just gear, just gear straps, bow hangers. Yep. And, uh, stabilizing straps. <clears throat> yeah. I was going to say that's what the, the, the stabilizing straps is, uh, is something where, you know, I always got my climber secondhand. So I never knew that a two piece climber like was supposed to be attached. And you'd think yep. that I would learn my lesson. Uh, but no, I dropped the bottom of the stand twice. <laughs> so I, 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 it took two times before, uh, I realized that, uh, I needed to do something differently, but, um, well, if you ever, if you ever go back to a climber, I mean, you, you know where to get a hold of me. So you got climb. <laughs> yeah. Brian, uh, make some pretty, pretty great products. What, so you've got the jawbone and the goat, which I think most people have have maybe seen. Um, but you've got some things for aiders and uh, bow sling and stuff like that. So talk a little bit about those, maybe the products that people aren't maybe familiar with. Yeah. So our our big products are the goat and the jawbone, which are I wouldn't say saddle specific, but the goat pretty much is saddle specific. The goat is a gear hanger, which converts into saddle suspenders to hold your saddle up as you're walking out. So the benefits of that is, um, it makes you more minimalistic because I don't like to carry a lot of stuff into the woods. Um, I try to be streamlined. So if I'm wearing the saddle, you can hook the goat around your shoulders and it, it three points into the back of your saddle, keeps your saddle up. And then when you get to your tree, climb up, you get in your platform and you tether in, um, you take the goat off. It's got saddle suspension tabs that uh, hook into your saddle. You take the goat off and you wrap it around tree and it becomes your gear hanger for the tree. Uh, the jawbone is a bow hook. It's a aluminum 6061 bow hook that uh, integrates really well with the goat, but it also integrates really well with just about every gear strap on the market. Um, uh, you know, gear straps from uh, latitude outdoors uh tethered you know if you have am steel um you can make your own and uh, the jawbone will work with any of those to to hang your bow in the tree um we make stabilizing straps or steady stand stabilizing straps that's what i started the company with uh we still make those today um and beyond, you know, popular belief, the climber is still alive and kicking uh people still still use the heck out of climbers so i still that's still one of our top sellers. Um, and then, yeah, then I have uh, the Dominator, which is uh, it's a single step aider that attaches to your climbing stick that has a flexible 
foldable standoff system on the bottom, which keeps your step away from the tree. So it makes your descent a lot easier. So if you've ever used a climbing aider, um, you know that if you're on a leaning tree, um, it can make it real difficult because gravity is going to want to pull the bottom step of your aider up against a tree, not giving you a whole lot of foot room. So our standoff system keeps that step away from the tree. So it makes it easier for your descent and get, uh, get your boot in there. And then we make some other, uh, some other straps or mup straps, which are our mobile utility packing straps, which work great for tree stands. Um, some 3d printed stuff, uh, like our saddleman's hook, which is a multi-purpose hook that attaches to your tether or your, uh, I'm sorry, your, uh, your lineman's belt to aid in hanging your platform before you hang your platform kind of thing. It also helps, uh, contain your, your, uh, lineman's rope, um, and some Euro hooks. Oh uh, yeah. Quite a few different products, other little small items, but yeah, that's pretty much the game we're in mobile hunting. So <laughs> yeah, it, it's one of those things where once you start to build something you're like, oh, well, I can make that and I can make that and I can make that. And it kind of spirals out of control to, yeah, to some degree. And, and that's, and that's it too. You know, I mean, I, all the stuff I, I start out and I make it for myself, you know, really. And then, you know, some friends will get it and, and people that I know. And, you know, if it, if it works out and find use in the product, then yeah, I'll put it, you know, bring it to market or whatever. But yeah, it all, it all starts with, uh, you know, me finding a need for it really, you know, I'm not just trying to make stuff just to make a buck, you know, just to, so I can go buy a new car or anything. It's just, I'm making it for myself and if people find it useful and, you know, they want to send money, money my way to, to try it out and <laughs> more power to you, you know, so. Awesome. So where can people check out your gear if they got more questions about uh, any of the stuff we talked about here? Like, how do they get a hold of you? Uh, yeah, you know, I'm more active on uh, Instagram than I am Facebook anymore. So BK Outdoors LLC on Instagram. Uh, our website is bkoutdoorsproducts.com. Um, you can go right there, check out all of our stuff. But, uh, you know, if you ever need to get a hold of me or whatever, yeah, Instagram's probably the best option. We have a Facebook page, but I'm not as active on the Facebook stuff. Um, so, yeah pretty much there well awesome brian i really appreciate uh you coming on tonight and uh good luck for the rest of the season yeah you too adam thanks for having me on man